Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. And as always, I hope you're doing all right. Wherever you find yourself as you listen today, whether you're having a great day or a terrible one, and even though we've perhaps never met, most likely, I'm thinking of you somehow in the mysterious way that a podcast can connect us. And... um Look, I'm sitting here, my, my, my foot is still broken, so I'm still dealing with that situation. Uh, Marvel the dog who lives next door is barking somewhat sporadically and finding its way to leak into this recording, I reckon. So if you do hear a, bo- a dog barking, just say, hi, Marvel. Lovely to hear from you. And, uh, and of course, before we get into what we're going to talk about today, which is heaven, which is a bit weird, but hopefully interesting, uh, before we do that, a couple of things. First thing I want to say is hello, Minnesota. And I only say that because over the last couple of months, I'm not very good at really tracking how this all works. You know, the technicals. Look, I'm not a technically savvy person, but I have noticed uh, some some listeners popping up in Minnesota. And I've got to be honest, I'm not even sure where Minnesota is, but I'm pretty sure it's in America. And so hello, people from Minnesota. If you're listening, lovely to have you. And of course, to everyone else, you're always always welcome as well to my lovely New Zealanders. Yes. Hi. Kilda. And to everybody else, wherever you are. And, uh, you know, please, as uh, some, many of you do, email me. Get in touch. Share a story. Ask a question. Tell me what you find interesting and what you want to know about. I really enjoy it when those emails drop into my inbox from people in all sorts of random places around the world who listen along. And of course, you can hit me up on In The Shift on the various socials as well. Is that what they call them? The socials? Uh, If you do follow me on the socials, you'll know I'm not particularly good at it. Again, technical issues. But I'm there and you can find me. So give that a crack. So having said all of that, back to the topic of heaven. And this comes... On the back of the episode last time, which was pulling apart some of those strange and curious notions of the end times or the mark of the beast or the rise of the Antichrist and the one world government, these rather odd ideas that have found their way into some rather strange formulations in contemporary Christianity, evangelicalism and Pentecostalism and so on in particular. And we tried to pull some of that apart and demonstrate why I think those points of view aren't particularly helpful or particularly faithful to what those original scriptural texts were trying to communicate. So this time I thought we'd, this time I thought we'd dive into some chats about heaven, and we did we did touch on a little bit of this when I did three episodes on hell a couple of years back. But this time I want to focus in on more on heaven more specifically, and and not as much as a sort of a who gets to go there type scenario because hopefully we've pulled those ideas apart already, but more from a curiosity perspective. So in this episode, I want to look a bit more closely at what I think is a way of understanding what it is that some of those biblical texts are trying to offer on the topic. So we're going to do that here. And then, and then for me, that's still not enough, really, because I think the biblical texts themselves are coming from a pretty ancient perspective. They don't always actually understand or express things in light of what we now know about the world, the universe, and the nature of reality, and so on. You know, So how do we... Because often the question we're left with is, oh, yeah, cool, so someone a couple of thousand years ago thought this about what was going to happen in the future, but what do we do with that now? Does that still actually mean anything helpful, accurate? 
So in the next episode, I'm going to be talking with Thomas J. Ord again, have him back on the program. We're going to be talking about the plausibility of life after death. You know, is it possible to have ongoing subjective experience after death, given what we now know about what a human being is and, and the nature of reality? Is the idea of heaven, in whatever way we're going to understand that, actually feasible in any sense? So we're going to dive into a bit of all of this over the next couple of episodes. For now, I do want to begin with what I think some of these ancient biblical authors we're trying to say, and then we'll move forward from there. All right, so this is episode 46 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. Okay, so as I'm sure you're aware, the idea of heaven is very common in the Christian imagination. And because of Christianity and its impact on the West and the Christian empire, if you like, of, of the Western world, historically speaking, heaven is very common in the Western imagination too, shaped by this particular kind of Christian way of thinking about it. And this is not to say that we don't have versions of the afterlife present in other places shaped by other traditions, but I'm dealing specifically, I suppose, here with this idea of heaven as it's been shaped up in the Western Christian tradition and in the Western broader popular imagination more generally. And, you know, heaven is a difficult topic to talk about. It's difficult because there are so many ideas about what it might entail and there are lots of people who have lots of theories and it's difficult because despite all of these ideas and theories, no one actually really knows exactly what we're dealing with because, well, you know, we're we're all alive, right? And so so it's challenging and difficult from that perspective. It's, it's always going to be speculative to some degree. And then it's difficult too because we are dealing with the tenderness of how we manage, cope with and negotiate what happens when those we love die. And a lot of what we might say about the afterlife and about heaven can sometimes be primarily motivated by the the comfort that we want to provide for one another. And so when someone we love dies, you know, we can say, well, now they're with Jesus or now they're dancing with the angels or they're looking down on us and they'd be proud or, you know, whatever it is that actually might be helpful to us in that moment. And I totally understand that. These are very understandable and natural things for us to say. And the last thing we want to do when we have this kind of conversation is just rip all of those band-aids off or rip the rug out from under our feet in that regard. Having said that, I do think that even though those ways of framing things can be comforting in the, in the moment on an individual level, we also do need to keep thinking and moving forward and working towards some more robust ways of thinking and talking about this idea. And, and part of the challenge with that sometimes is that the more you talk about something like heaven and what you think about it, the more it can start to sound like some kind of weird science fiction movie and you end up sounding delusional or just fantastical or does anything we're saying here actually bear any resemblance to reality in any real meaningful sense? Or is just this all some ancient fluffy nonsense that we should just move on from? You know? So what are we talking about here when we talk about heaven? Are we talking about pearly gates? Are we talking about clouds and wings and an old white man playing God? Are we talking about streets of gold and a mansion for you and for you and for you? Uh, a lot of those images are highly prevalent within popular imagination about heaven. Some of those, in my own Christian experience, were debunked or, or 
not propagated along the way. And then some of those very much were, you know, I think about some of the messages I heard in in the past when I was a younger man about why we should give and about how that was going to impact the size of your mansion when you get to heaven and things like that. Um, and so those, sometimes that was done slightly tongue in cheek and sometimes it was kind of done seriously and you never quite knew which was which. And so all of these ideas swirl around for us. Rewards, crowns, so on and on and on it goes. Then there are stories from people who have had near-death experiences, people who have claimed perhaps to have been to some kind of heavenly reality and to have experienced it, and then they come back and tell us about it. And sometimes those things sound a bit silly and ridiculous, and sometimes they sound a bit more meaningful and We're not quite sure often what to do with those. In popular Christianity, as we think about it, heaven is often thought of as where Christians go after they've died, and in particular after they've died and faced judgment. So there is this idea that uh, once the end of the world kind of wraps up, then everybody's going to face judgment before God. And those whose names are written in the book of life get to enter into eternal paradise with God where they get to you know, sing Hillsong songs around the throne forever and ever. I mean, and of course, there's the, there's the hell issue that often sits on the other side of that. And so there are some ethical problems about who gets in and who doesn't. And sometimes it seems like quite a narrow list, you know, when it's limited to only those people who have prayed the proper, correct prayer after responding to the gospel presentation. So sometimes that seems a bit narrow and a bit stingy. And then some of us then want to broaden that out a little bit and maybe say, well, maybe, maybe you know, Christ- heaven is a place where, where generally good people go or goodish people or maybe everyone except people who are really bad like Hitler or whatever it is. You know, we, we, <laughs> we're trying to figure out how we make sense of this kind of idea, not just in terms of what we're even talking about here, but then how we even understand how that might fit into the kind of people that we are now. And then even just this overall notion that that heaven is something like our true home, for example, which is sometimes the language that you'll come across within the church, has its own ethical problems that it throws up. And so Christianity becomes seen as an escape plan. And this is something I'm sure I'm touched on a number of times throughout the journey of this podcast to this point, which is that Christianity ends up being this dysfunctional way of thinking about faith, which is all about how I can take as many people with me as possible to the other place where we'll really belong and really be at home. And so we we hear language like we're just, you know, heaven is my home, I'm just passing through, or this is a test, or, you know, all of these different ways of, of thinking about how this life, in fact, is not the real life and doesn't really matter. What really matters is the home of heaven that we'll go to at some point in the future. And so, as um, as you'll be probably familiar with, that has a, an impact on how we think about environmental issues. Should we care for the environment? Probably not. This earth is all just going to burn up anyway because heaven is my home and that's where we're all going to go, or at least the good ones, or at least the ones who prayed the Jesus prayer, or at least the ones I managed to save. And so why would I spend any energy or attention caring about the environment when... Um, when heaven is my real home. And then that similar kind of mentality flows through to the way perhaps we think about issues of, of, of larger social concern and social transformation and, and social justice movements and so on. 
So again, if this all ultimately comes down to the sense of the heaven place out there in the future somewhere, that's the real thing, then it sets the priorities for our lives very carefully, uh, very clearly and carefully, and it encourages us, I think, to actually feel alienated from the world that we live in. And many of us don't need any encouragement in that regard. Many of us, for all sorts of reasons to do with the human psyche and our sense of alienation from one another as it is, you know, we already feel disconnected or, or at least a threat of feeling disconnected from others and from the earth. And, you know, I think our modern contemporary um, lives, especially for those of us who live in highly built up cities, feel disconnected from, from the earth and, and from creation in many respects. And then we feed this kind of theology into it and that actually feeds and cultivates that sense of alienation and disconnection and, and essentially says, yes, that alienation and disconnection you feel, that's the right intuition because this isn't really your home. Your home is going to be heaven one day with God. And so, yes, you'll feel like an alien in this world because ultimately you are. And I think perhaps even as much as some of those other concerns, if not sometimes a more pervasive problem is this a cultivation of a sense of disconnection and alienation that comes from seeing heaven as our true home. Uh, and it's a place that we go to after we die. So, so let's peel back from there a little bit, have a look at some aspects of the biblical narrative and think about how we might approach them when it comes to a topic like this. And, and perhaps we can start with Genesis 1. That's the very beginning of the Bible, right? And and it's one of the central framing mythic narratives for the nation of Israel. It's, it's the story of creation, but it's told in this very mythic and symbolic way. And it doesn't paint this idea of these two separate places uh, where there's human beings on earth and then there's other beings in heaven, as much as it is this idea of harmony and shalom, the sense of shalom being, being that word for peace or wholeness, the presence of harmony in relationship with God, self, others, and creation. There's a sense that heaven and earth, in fact, are, are kind of united in this beautiful way. God walks in the garden with Adam. And so there's this intimate connection between those ideas. And yet there's also this implication as the story unfolds that because these human beings act in dehumanizing ways towards themselves and towards others, towards creation, because they seek to block themselves off from God and God's way of being in the world to alienate themselves, if you like, from God and even from each other, that there is this kind of disconnection that enters the story and, and, and maybe that disconnection flows through to a, to a disconnect or a fracture in that sense of, of heaven and earth being united, being close, being intimate partners and instead a distortion or a fracture to the nature of that closeness or that relationship. And so... It's possible that that fracture is is understood more in terms of our own psyche, perhaps, and our way of seeing reality more than it is a physical location thing. So it's not like heaven and earth were really close together because heaven was in the same place as earth, and then and then we did these things, and so heaven had to float away. You know, it's it's not thinking about this in terms of physical space as much as it is way of seeing. Uh, way of understanding and perceiving reality and how we live in that reality. And, you know, the, sto the story of, of these Genesis creation myths themselves are, are likely, you know, many scholars think they're a metaphor for the story of Israel. So they're not really about a literal kind of imagining or a literal telling of the story of creation as much as they are a 
mythic telling of Israel's own story through these characters, people like Adam and Eve. You know, um, Israel is this nation who are grappling with their own self-understanding, especially when they put together some of these stories. And their self-understanding is is of them as a people who were called to be a particular kind of people, but then who wander away from this path and get distracted and, and wander off and reject God and get themselves into all sorts of trouble as a result. And so we see that kind of story mirrored in the mythic telling of, of the story of Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden and, and so on. So there is this sense then that the language of heaven and earth, the language of of how we think about some of those phrases that perhaps we tend to um, push our already preconceived ideas onto. The language here is is not so much some kind of literal place kind of language, but uh, language for what it is, how we are living in the world, how we are perceiving and seeing the world, the nature of our relationship to one another and, the, to, the, and to the divine and to the presence of things the way they should or shouldn't be in the world. So... So that's some of what's going on there. And, and as I've mentioned before, I think, when we, when we talked about hell uh, a little while ago, so if you haven't listened to those episodes, you know, if, if, if heaven cheers you up a bit too much and, you, and you'd rather just dig into the doldrums, then you can go, go listen to a few episodes on hell. That sounds encouraging, doesn't it? Uh, anyway, spoiler alert. I kind of spoil the idea of hell for everybody. Anyway, you can do that for yourself. As I said in some of those episodes, the Old Testament itself actually has very little to say about some kind of place you go when you die. When it comes to life after death, in general, actually, the Old Testament itself is not clear at all. It's pretty ambiguous. The language of Sheol is used as this idea of the grave or the shadowy abode of the dead. It's, it's a slightly ambiguous term that so it talks about where we go when we die, but it doesn't imply the necessarily that there's some kind of conscious experience there, but it also doesn't count it out. It's pretty vague. And at times, some of the, some of the poets and prophets speak of this hope that God will somehow overcome Sheol and rescue us from the grave, but often that's being used as a metaphor. They're using Sheol itself, the grave, as a metaphor for their own violence and destruction they're experiencing in their lives and they're wanting rescue in the here and now from that. So it's not always, again, talking about life after death. Sometimes it seems to be hinting at that. Sometimes it seems to be some suggestion of that. But none of that really has anything to do with this idea of a place called heaven that we go to one day after we die. The the sacred spaces and rituals for the for the Jewish people in the Old Testament they become places where heaven and earth meet. You know, so uh, early on in the story, after they've escaped, you know, they're liberated from slavery in Egypt. They they build this tabernacle, which becomes the place where the presence of God is found, and so that becomes a space where heaven and earth meet in a particular kind of way. Uh, later on, when the temple is built, that becomes the, the holy of holiness, where the tabernacle is placed. That becomes again a, a symbolic representation of where heaven and earth meet. And then later in the Jewish tradition, actually, it's the, the Torah itself, the law, becomes this kind of intersection of heaven and earth. So, so heaven and earth come together in these little moments, in these particular sacred spaces or places or rituals. And then there's this looking forward within, within the ancient Old Testament world. They have experienced a lot of suffering and a lot of pain, and they experienced oppression under foreign violent empires, their kingdom has disintegrated 
and they find themselves scattered in exile in foreign nations, ruled over by foreign leaders. And so they begin to look forward to a time when a Messiah will come and rescue Israel. They'll get a king who will come and reign on the throne of David. And so David, who's their archetypal hero of the old, one of the archetypal heroes of the Old Testament, is seen as, you know, his kingdom will, and his throne will endure forever. And so a king will rise up who will sit on the throne of David and who will bring about then the making of all things new. And this was never in their minds an idea of disappearing off to a ethereal city in the clouds somewhere when we die. It was not it was us all floating off somewhere to go and escape. It was the idea that the Messiah would rise up to actually rescue and restore them on this earth here and that when that day comes, some kind of judgment would take place and that judgment and justice would be about putting things right in the world and so peace and shalom would be brought to the earth. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven would be established. Heaven and earth would be one as they were always intended to be. Right, so you've got this um, trajectory of hope toward a time in the future when God somehow in the story would intervene through raising up a Messiah who would come and bring about this kind of making of all things new. Again, this is not primarily or at all about going somewhere after you die. So by the time we get to the time of Jesus in the first century, we have a range of views about life after death. There's not a real clear sense of whether there is life after death or not. There's not a clear sense if there is life after death of what that means. So Many non-Jewish people influenced by Greek philosophy and and religion believed in a non-physical, what we might call an immaterial future of the soul. In other words, this idea that the real eternal part of you is not your physical body, but in fact is your soul or your spirit, whatever language we might wrap around that. And so once you die, it's that soul or spirit, that non-physical part of you that will live on. And, And so some in particular outside of the Jewish faith in the Greco-Roman world held to that kind of idea. And some Jews also uh, picked up that idea as they lived in that context and in that world. And so some Jewish people believed that. Other Jewish people believed that after one's death and one's kind of descent into Sheol or the grave or Hades or whatever language is, is being used there, there would come a bodily resurrection, a physical resurrection that would take place at some time in the future. And so some of them looked forward to a time when there would be some kind of judgment and then a bodily, physical resurrection. And so rather than your immaterial soul or spirit floating off to be with God in the sky or or whatever, um, instead this physical embodied resurrection that might take place. There were others that didn't believe in any, other Jewish people who didn't believe in any kind of life after death. So the Sadducees, for example, didn't believe in resurrection, physical resurrection, as um, as some of the other Jewish leaders understood it. It does seem like Jesus sides with those who believe in some kind of future physical resurrection. He makes some statements about that in, in Luke 14 and, and elsewhere that indicate that Jesus believes in some kind of physical resurrection. And, um, and obviously that makes sense then, in light of his own story and the way that we see that unfold. Now, I think all of this is is important for us to grapple with and to make some sense of because when we come to read some of these New Testament texts, what we often do, as we do with many uh, topics that we find present in these stories, is that we or if we already hold a preconceived notion of what we think 
is meant by certain terms. Then when we read those texts, we, we import those assumptions into the text when we read them. And, and so any time, if, we, if we've got heaven as this city in the sky that we'll all be flying away to, uh, or the city in another dimension that we're all flying away to, then whenever we read any kind of language about the kingdom of heaven or about heaven or about life after death, when we read those texts, we're immediately importing that assumption into our readings of those. And so what we want to try and do is, you know, read more, more, a bit more faithfully than that to the way that they might have been heard in their time. And that also helps us, even as we think about some of these ideas, in light of what we now know about the universe, you know, we, we can actually get on a rocket ship and leave earth. And what we find when we break through the clouds is that we don't arrive in heaven, but in fact can fly all the way to Mars, you know? So uh, so I think this is helpful in terms of grappling with, not just with what some of these original texts were saying, but also with reality as we now understand it. So all of this means if we're not going to import our assumptions in, that when we come across someone, like a, like a teacher who comes to Jesus and says, uh, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The assumption I had when I was younger was when someone was asking that question, what they're asking is, what do I need to do so that I'll go to heaven when I die? Because that's what eternal life is, surely, right? And yet, when we understand that the kingdom of heaven and even language like eternal life for someone like Jesus is not really about where are you going to go when you die as much as it is about a way of seeing and perceiving and experiencing in the present then you know that that shapes the way that we understand how Jesus answers, and in fact, what Jesus does is say, you know, do this in his answer, do this, and you will live. Not do this, and you will go to heaven one day. And and in fact, elsewhere in, in the book of John, Jesus actually specifically says that eternal life is to know God. In other words, eternal life is about relationship and with and, and knowledge of the divine. It's about a way of seeing and experiencing reality and and God. That's the way Jesus seems to grapple with this idea of what eternal life is, rather than eternal life being about a state of where you go one day. Now, all of this is not to say that the Bible has nothing to say about where or what the future might be and what happens after all of this is done. It's just that sometimes we read that into everything because of our preconceived assumptions and Sometimes it's just not the issue that's actually being explored in some of these stories and passages. And it's not usually what the Bible is actually talking about when it talks about heaven. And so when we read things in Jesus' ministry about, you know, the, when he, he starts to talk about forgiveness and about healing and about restoration and about inclusion and, and drawing people back into community, and he says the, things like the kingdom of heaven has come upon you or the kingdom of heaven is near or the kingdom of heaven is within you. At the, in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, the, the famous Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't say blessed are the poor in spirit for they will go to heaven one day when they die. He says blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. So all of this is to say that the biblical image of heaven or the heavens at this point is it's actually very material, it's physical, it's earthly, it's grounded. It's not to say that there are future implications, but it's just not talking about that as often as we usually assume. There is this little passage. Now, we talked in the last episode a bit about the book of Revelation and how the book of Revelation has been used as this kind of end times manual to try and predict the coming of the Antichrist in the future when in fact what it is is a piece of subversive, nonviolent political literature, political religious literature in the late first century that is uh, calling Christians to live faithful to the way of 
self-giving love in Christ rather than to take up the power and violence of the empire that's around them and that ultimately they'll be vindicated if they do so. That's what's going on largely in the book of Revelation. But right towards the end of that letter, the author says uh, says this uh, little passage here. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. Now this is actually a really beautiful image of all things being made new, which is very much in tune, in fact, with the Old Testament vision as well of God's renewal of, of things being made new and of what it looks like when the kingdom of God is, is fully among us and it's much less of us going up into heaven and actually more a God dwelling, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, this idea of God being united intimately and profoundly with us on an earth that's been made anew. And so... Um, there's this idea, if you like, you know, the, some of the language for our own renewal in the New Testament is language like uh, being born again, for example, as a, as, a, as a metaphor for this idea of something coming alive within us. Or Paul's language at one point about being a new creation, that I'm a new creation when I'm, when I'm actually reconciled, when I'm in relationship with the divine and forming more peaceful, loving relationships with others and in myself, then I am a new creation. And that kind of language here at the end of Revelation is being talked about for the earth itself. So rather than kind of the, the whole earth is going to burn up and we're all going to float away to somewhere else, instead what seems to be going on at, at one reading of these texts, and, and it's a reading I'm particularly sympathetic to, is that what these authors seem to think is that somehow what happens in, to Jesus, if we look at the resurrection story of Jesus, this idea that Jesus' resurrection then informs a way of thinking about what's going to happen to us. And so because Jesus resurrected, human beings also will resurrect. And not only that, but actually uh, God is so intimately connected to and present within not just humankind, but all of creation, that this resurrection doesn't just foreshadow the uniqueness of what happens to human beings, but actually what happens to the entire cosmos. And so the, the whole creation of God experiences a resurrection, a renewal, a redemption of some kind. And so uh, elsewhere, there's this text in, in a letter to the to the church in Rome that talks about all of creation groaning with expectation or with anticipation, kind of waiting for things to be made right. And, um, and so... And so there's this language of new heavens, new earth, this language of new creation, this language of no more uh, death, no more mourning, no more tears, there's no longer any sea, which is, again, isn't, all of this language is highly symbolic and metaphorical, so it's, it's difficult to take it literally or to figure out exactly what it's trying to say. But the sea in the ancient Near Eastern understanding was an image of chaos and of danger, and so the idea of there no longer being any sea is not like, no, there's going to be no surfing in heaven – but it's uh, that was apparent. Apparently, that was my grumpy old Christian voice. But the idea of of no longer any chaos, no longer any any unforeseen danger. So there's 
still this kind of mystery to this. The images aren't clear. They're speculative. They're a bit vague. But they're hopeful. It seems like these authors believe that there is something bigger going on here and that as much as God is interested in how we live in the here and now and as much as most of the attention of the biblical authors is addressing how we live in the here and now, there's also this idea that God is at work at the heart of reality itself, drawing it forward into something more beautiful. This idea that heaven isn't really about being a place out there somewhere, but about the the reconciling and renewing of all things, about shalom, about harmony with God and self and others in creation. So that lives actually that we live and the relationships we build and nurture here in the present, here and now, these actually matter now and into the future. And so what we find is actually every time that the New Testament talks about any notion of heaven or future life, it is actually to challenge and to inspire and to enliven the way that we live in the present. And so this idea of hope becomes important in the New Testament and important especially for those who are suffering. And, and you know, I, I, there is as much as a part of me is can sometimes be quite agnostic and quite cynical about some of these ideas because I don't really know what to do with them all the time. As much as I'm telling you what, what I think the biblical authors are trying to say, that doesn't mean I always just readily accept it and say, yeah, of course, yeah, that's exactly how it's going to go. Sometimes I find myself going, I don't really know. I'm not really sure. And sometimes living as a relatively comfortable middle-class white person I don't always need that future hope quite as desperately as many other people do. And so I think about the person who lives their entire life in a refugee camp somewhere. Or I think the person about the person who has experienced grave and persistent suffering and pain in their lives. And I can see how in that space, actually, this idea of heaven, of hope, of the idea that one day there will be no more pain and mourning and chaos, but all things will be made whole and will be made new. I can see why that idea is still so important to those people. I think there's still importance for me too, but I think the importance is diminished when life in the present is, relatively speaking, quite comfortable. I hope that makes sense. Having said all of that, I think... All of this does still leave me with questions. It still causes me to say, okay, well, that might be what the Bible says. And in fact, I think it's quite a beautiful vision. I think it's a beautiful idea, this idea that somehow God is at work in the midst of all things to make all things new and that ultimately in the future, there will be this idea of new life, of resurrection life, not just for me and for you, but also, but for all things for God's creation, and it will be made new, and it will be whole, and there will no longer be death and pain and mourning and suffering, but instead there will be this uh, sense of harmony and beauty and peace and love and relationship. You know, that all sounds awesome. I mean, how could you not like that idea? The question that we still sit with is, is it plausible? (laughs) Does it actually make any sense? Is it anything other than just some nice, beautiful imaginations to make ourselves feel a bit better? So next episode... We're going to dive into that. We're going to tackle some of the more thorny questions, bits, concerns, questions that we might have 
Is it really possible or plausible to think about life after death in any kind of meaningful way? Is it really possible and plausible to talk about heaven or a renewed earth or any of this language, given what we now know of reality as modern 21st century people? So that's where we're going in the next episode. Thanks as always to Reese Michelle for his audio manipulation of my voice to make it sound listenable to your ears. Until next time.